Amen. Thank you, Steve. Uh, yes, we are very excited about the fall. Um, obviously, we are preparing with a team to go back to the, to the Middle East in January. But we just thought, you know, we'll be here for a few months. And if there are areas that we can serve and invest, we would love to do that. And so we're excited about that and excited to, to get to know a lot of you more. It's been such a joy to be here the last three Sundays and share. I mean, um, just we've loved vintage. We love the, the family that is here. Um, and we're also excited about bringing some of our, you know, missions ministry in, into this church and into the community here. We, uh, we're in the process not only of launching a new team, but really a new ministry that's going to be focused in the Middle East. And one of the things that I am so passionate about is seeing, seeing people, you know, believers actively engage with the Great Commission. And we are all called to do that. That's not what we're talking about this morning. But we are all called to do that, whether it's going, a few of us will go, or whether it's praying, we're all called to pray, and then giving. And most of us are also called to give. And so I'm sure you'll hear, hear more about that from me as well. But um, that is what I'm very excited about, is just bringing that, you know, into seeing people engaged with the Great Commission. Well, this morning, this is our third Sunday in uh, Ephesians, and so uh, we'll be mostly in Ephesians three fourteen through 19, so you can go ahead and open up your Bibles. Um, Ephesians, obviously, it's just, uh, it's the book of Romans on steroids, that's the way I like to look at it. So there's so much to cover, and in three Sundays, all you can do is highlight a few points that Paul talks about. So our first Sunday, we talked about Ephesians chapter 1. And the prayer, specifically the prayer that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus in in chapter 1. And then last week we spent most of our time on the first part of chapter 3, where Paul talks about the eternal purpose of God. And today we're going to again be in a prayer that Paul prays here at the end of chapter 3. So I'm going to read this for us, and then I'll pray one more time, and then we'll jump in. I think the, the scripture should be on the screen. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. Paul says this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, as we read this scripture, and as we look at your words, and as we engage with you, Lord, we ask that you would be present among us. More than anything, we need the Holy Spirit to speak this morning. Lord, understanding your word, understanding who you are, being able to see you is nothing that we can force ourselves to do, but it's through you, through your power, through your spirit. And so this morning, God, I ask that you would help us, God, that you would minister to us, that you would rest upon us. Holy Spirit, that you would come in this room and speak this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, like I said, the first week we were in Ephesians 1, and last week we were doing Ephesians 3, where Paul talks about the eternal purpose of God. And 
One of the things that I love, and I'll probably bore you with this, but I love repeating a few things because it helps us to remember. So in order to do that, I want to remind us of what context points we talked about for the book of Ephesians. There were three main ones that we discussed, and the first is Ephesus in the Roman world, remembering what the city of Ephesus was in the Roman world. The second was the religious city of Ephesus, and these are on the screen. And the third was the character of this specific letter. Now, Ephesus in the Roman world, you remember, we said there were 250,000 people or so. It was a culture center. It was an economic center, and it was a desired destination to go to, probably the hub of Asia Minor which is all of western, the western coast of Turkey. That's what it is today. So this is, it was a known city. Many people wanted to go there. And then, but it also had a religious dynamic. It was the, the head of, or the, the place of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the goddess Artemis, or Diana. And that was based there. And the city of Ephesus was pretty much given to this pagan, idolatrous worship. And, you know, we talked about how the revival that swept through mostly had to do with those who are worshiping Artemis turning to Jesus. And that was in Acts 19. And then our third point that we mentioned was about the character of this specific letter. Paul's not necessarily writing to confront the church in Ephesus, but he's the tone of this letter is much more worshipful. There is a tone that centers around Jesus, the person of Christ, the glory of God. And that is a little bit different than some of his other other letters. But then we also I gave you a short outline and this outline, again, is just to have in your back pocket. So when you read the book of Ephesians, you know where you're at and you know what's what overall Paul's communicating because he has just a lot of run on sentences. That's all he really does. And those three points were the first two chapters are mostly about theology. The first two chapters, Paul's describing what God has done, what he's done and how it's enabled us as Gentiles to come into the, his inheritance in in the saints. And then chapter three is mostly about the mission. Missiology is the word that you could use, but that just means the mission. And that was last week where we talked about his mission. God's mission for the church is to make known the manifold wisdom of God to the powers and principalities. And he uses Paul Right. Paul's using his own story as an example here. He uses Paul, a weak, broken vessel, preaching the word to what make known the manifold wisdom of God to the powers and principalities in the air. And that was chapter three. And then last we have chapters four, five and six. And that's mostly about the church. That's a fancy word. It's called ecclesiology. You don't even need to remember it, but it just means the church, the way that the church should function in unity as a family. And we emphasized how the mission of the church and the the function of the church as a family are all built upon the theology who we what we believe about God is going to determine our mission and who we how we function together. So those are that's just a little bit of repeat for you. That way we have context still, because context, I think, is one of the most uh, important things when we read scripture. It helps us to grasp it a little better than just opening it and reading it. Now, Ephesians 3, you guys tracking with me this morning? Hello? Everybody here? Amen. Okay. Sometimes I talk about some, some stuff like that too much. Anyway, Ephesians 3, here we are. Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 19. This is a prayer. 
In the same way that Ephesians chapter 1, 17, what we talked about two weeks ago, that was a prayer. This is also a prayer that Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus. And what I love about this, I like to call this an apostolic prayer. And there are many apostolic prayers in the Bible. You find some in Philippians. You find some in Thessalonians. You find two here in Ephesians. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, I would consider an apostolic prayer. John 17, apostolic prayer. You find these prayers in the Bible. And what I love about these prayers is that you can be confident that these prayers are God's will. Many times when we set aside time to pray in our day, um, we are concerned. Am I praying the will of God or not? Right. We think, what what does he really want to do and how can I pray according to that? And sometimes for some people I've found that thought can stress them out so much they don't even end up praying. Because we can be so concerned whether we're praying the will of God or not. Maybe we don't even open our mouth and pray because we don't want to pray something that's not the will of God. But what's nice about these prayers is that we can be 100% confident that they are God's will. Because they're in the Bible. So the prayer that we talked about in Ephesians chapter 1, that is God's will. His will is to give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That the eyes of your heart will be opened. That's his will. This prayer in Ephesians 3 that we're going to talk about, this is his will, his desire. And what we find in these apostolic prayers, more times than not, in fact, not more times than not, all of them are positive. These are positive prayers. And what happens is they facilitate unity, they impact our emotions, and they build our faith. So these are positive prayers that usually facilitate unity in the church, impact our emotions, and build up our faith. He designed these prayers to help human hearts flow well and work well together in unity with a spirit of encouragement and faith. Now, when I say they're positive, let me just describe that for you. You can see that, but let me give you contrast it for a minute. When you pray for people, for example, if you have a friend that maybe is stuck in sin, right? There's two ways that you can pray for that person. You can focus on their sin. Or you can focus on God's desire for them, which is what these prayers focus on. And, and many times when we focus on someone's sin, even in prayer, that has a very judgmental attitude towards it. And it tends to form our perspective. Even though I get it, we're praying, that's good. But sometimes if we focus on the negative things that are happening, that forms our perspective. Whereas these prayers, they're positive. And what I mean by that is they emphasize God's desire. God's desire for someone who's in sin, for example, is to reveal himself to them. Because that's what transforms somebody. And when we pray that way, not only for ourselves, so we can use these prayers to pray for ourselves, but also our friends and also our churches and communities. And when we pray this way, the way that this facilitates unity is because not only are our prayers being answered for people, but our hearts also begin to change. Okay, so we're praying and we're asking for this, maybe someone who's in sin or maybe someone who um, is offended or hurt or all these different things. But when we pray, instead of in a judgmental way, and no one's intending to be judgmental, I get that, but sometimes we tend to have a negative tone. Instead of doing that, when we pray these prayers, which are positive, we're actually praying according to God's desire. And then God's desire begins to become our desire. 
And then what maybe we were tempted to to also be judgmental towards that person. We're no longer tempted to do that. Instead, we want to be one. We want the same thing that God wants for that person. You know, for someone, you know, who has hurt you, for example, or offended you, you want to pray for them, right? The Bible tells us to pray for your brother who sins against you. But sometimes that's hard because you've been hurt. And so many times you're praying not only for them to maybe see that, but you're praying from this selfish place of God. I want to be vindicated as well. And there's room for that, I believe. But at the same time, God desires more that you two, say you're praying for one other person, you two would walk together in unity, that that love would be mutual between you. So when we pray these prayers, that's something powerful that I believe happens is that not no longer are we praying according to our own will, right? We're praying according to God's will and what God desires for people. So that's just a note for us to remember. When you see these prayers, they are positive and they do facilitate unity. So tomorrow morning, Monday morning, Tuesday morning, when you get your coffee ready at 5 a.m., 6 a.m. or 10 a.m., no matter, depending on what stage of life you're in, when you get your coffee ready in the morning, and you sit down on your sun porch, again, depending on what stage of life you're in, or your closet, (laughs) or your bed, then you can sit down, and when you don't know what to pray, you can open your Bible. Ephesians chapter 1. You can open your Bible. Ephesians chapter 3. And you can pray this prayer. You can pray this prayer for yourself. You can pray this prayer for your church. You can pray this prayer for your community, for your school. All of those things. That's important to remember. Ephesians 3.14. I like to break this passage down in four parts. The first one is verses 14 through 16. And I call this abide. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father in heaven, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now, the reason I use the word abide, that's a word that comes from John chapter 15. Jesus says, when you abide in me, I'll abide in you. And Paul, in verses 16 and 17, which we'll see in a second, he's communicating the same thing. The word abide can sound mystical. I get it. The word abide, maybe we don't understand all of what it means, but I'm going to give you a short, simple definition of of the word abide while there probably are many other things that can mean as well, one of the simplest things it can mean is talk to me. When you abide in me, is what Jesus says, when you talk to me, when you're with me, not necessarily about the things you want or the things you need, but when you just talk to me, when you spend time with me, then he says, I will also abide in you. So Paul here, he's saying, pray, talk to me, that you would be strengthened with my in your inner being. Now, the word inner being, the way that I like to understand it, is our, our, our emotions, our mind. That we would be strengthened with might in our inner being. Christianity is not a list of do's and don'ts. We all know this. However, at the same time, you are called to be righteous. You're called to be holy. You're called to not sin. And so if it's not a list of do's and don'ts, how are you to be holy as he is holy? Which he tells us to do. How are you to be righteous? Now, if you want, you know, you can grind your teeth all day long and force yourself not to sin. 
That's called behavior management. And you can do that. It's really tough, but you can do it. It's called behavior management. But Paul gives us another way here. He says you can pray to be strengthened in your inner being with divine might. And when you're strengthened, your mind and your emotions are inspired so that now you don't have to grind your teeth to choose righteousness every day. You don't have to force your will. Instead, you desire to choose that righteousness. You, you want, you long to not sin. You long to be holy as he is holy. That's what Paul means when he says, pray that you'd be strengthened. It's that in our cell, in, inside of us, our mind and our emotions now have strength and they're inspired and they're impacted by God and we're given a desire to choose that righteousness. Instead of the religious alternative, which is do this and don't do this. That's not what Christianity is. God's given us the Holy Spirit for a reason. And Paul says, if you just ask, this will become a lot easier for you. If you ask, he'll breathe upon your emotions to where it's, it's not a task anymore. It becomes enjoyable. This life of holiness becomes a joy. And then he says, he goes on to the second thing in verse 17. When you do this, when you pray, he says, then Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. So when we pray, when God moves upon our mind and emotions and allows us to choose righteousness, he says, then Christ dwells on our hearts. Now, there's a few things to think about with this. When we become believers... We all say yes to Jesus. And there is something real that happens in that moment where Christ dwells inside of us and we are sealed. Okay, we've given ourselves, we profess faith in Christ. We are saved from eternal damnation. But here, Paul is speaking of something a little bit different. What I like to compare to Jesus's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Paul is saying that we have a need every day for Christ to dwell on our hearts. There is a moment when you get saved that Christ dwells in you. But we need daily bread every day. We need to receive from him every day. Now, many of us in this room, we've probably had maybe an encounter with God or a moment in our life where, I don't know, maybe it was an overwhelming experience. And maybe that was when you got saved or maybe that was when you rededicated your life to Jesus, or maybe that was another time, a good prayer meeting. And we have these moments. I have these moments. We all have these moments. And sometimes we walk away from these moments, maybe a week later, or maybe two weeks later, and we're wondering, man, why can't I feel God anymore? Why can't I sense God? Where is God? And if you're anything like me, you've asked that question, where are you, God? Right? You're in a challenging situation, or... You feel distance and you ask the question, where is God? Paul is telling us that if we first ask, then he will come and dwell on our hearts. But you have to ask. So if you're asking the question, God, where are you? Take a step back and think, have you asked him to come and strengthen you with might in your inner being? Because that precedes him dwelling on your heart through faith that precedes you being rooted and grounded in love. 
asking precedes that. Now, it doesn't determine whether you're saved or not, but that experience that you're looking for, you have to ask. Now, he will give it graciously, periodically, but if you want to receive your daily bread, if you want to encounter him today, we have to try to ask him, Lord, strengthen me today with divine might in my inner being. Now, that encounter that we're looking for, it's difficult sometimes in the church because encounters with God can be described in such dramatic ways. And I believe in dramatic encounters. They're biblical. We see Ezekiel. We see Isaiah. We see Paul. Right? God wants to encounter us sometimes in dramatic ways. But what I've found, I think for the majority of us, is that it's not always dramatic. Now, my wife, she dreams a lot, so that sounds dramatic to me. I never dream. I never have dreams. I never have visions. <laughs> but... What I do have is sometimes I sense God's nearness. When I pray, sometimes I sense God's nearness. It may not look like, a, you know, for two weeks I was in the presence of God, right? We hear people talk about that, and it sounds exaggerated, and then we believe this exaggerated version of what we should be experiencing. And when we don't experience it, we wonder, why am I not experiencing it that way? When really it is different for all of us, and sometimes it's very simple. I think for the majority of us, it is very simple. It's ask. Ask him to dwell on your heart. And when he dwells on your heart, it can be gentle. It might just be him letting you sense his presence. Now, this dwelling is the same thing from John 15. Abide in me. And then he says this, I will abide in you. Paul is saying, when you ask him to strengthen you with divine might, he will dwell on your heart. And then the second thing he says in this specific part, you will be rooted and established in love, unmoved by different things, unmoved by the challenges that you face that day. You will be rooted. You will be grounded. You will be established so that nothing can move you. Now, the third part of this passage is verse 18. He says that you would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that passes all knowledge. So when we ask, he then dwells on our hearts through faith, roots and establishes us in love, and then he gives us the ability to understand, to comprehend something that is incomprehensible. Something that has gone on throughout all eternity. And he describes it as the love of God that you would know the breadth. If you don't know what that word means, that means the width, the breadth, the width of God, the width of his love, how wide it is. That it's not a respecter of persons, whether you have position, authority, power, despite your personality. You would know the width of his love, the length of his love, that it is an, an eternal love. That is everlasting, never ending. The depth of his love. That he went to the deepest places. He was in the heights of the heavens. John 1 says he is the word of God. He was with God and chose to bow so low. Even going into the earth to Hades. He went to the deepest places to express this love. And then that you would know the height of this love, that he was exalted. From that low place, God raised him up. And that is what we are invited to partner in. Paul says that we have the ability 
to comprehend something like this. A love that is eternal that we can't even understand with our natural minds. He says you can experience it. That experience, again, does not have to be dramatic. That experience can be simple. That experience can be soft. That experience can just be his nearness. And then he finishes and he says that you would be filled with all the fullness of God. If it wasn't enough for Christ to dwell on us and to be rooted and established, he then says that we can comprehend how wide, high, deep and long is the love of God. And then still the fullness, the fullness of God would dwell in us, that we would be filled with all the fullness of God. So he gives us these four things. I think I think we have all four of them on the slide. He, he says that if we abide, if we talk to him, if we ask him, then he will dwell in us and then root and establish us so that we can comprehend his love and that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And the most important thing is we have to ask. But it's simple, but we have to do it. We have to ask him, Lord, would you... Would you, would you strengthen my inner being? Would you touch my mind and emotions so that I have that desire to choose righteousness? Now, one of the things I believe that, or for me, makes this passage much more impactful is when I think about Paul. Paul, we know, was originally Saul. Paul was the persecutor of Christian, Christians. In Acts chapter 9, when Paul is encountered, he was actually on his way to kill Christians. And Paul, when he's encountered, God appears to him, and then he appears to this man named Ananias. And in Acts chapter 9, God speaks to Ananias and says, Go, Paul is a chosen instrument of mine, and will carry before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. Carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. And then he says, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. This is in Acts chapter 9. God's encountered Paul, and then he speaks to this other person, Ananias, and he says, go to this place. There's going to be a man named Paul there. And Ananias is like, what? Why am I going there? Why do I need to see Paul? And God says, because I've called him to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to the children of Israel, and he needs to know what he will have to suffer for my name's sake. And in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul tells us exactly what that was that he suffered. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says he was imprisoned with countless beatings, often near death. Five times he had 40 minus one lashes, 39 lashes, five different times, not just once, but five times he had 40 minus one lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods. That's different than the lashes. One time he was stoned. Paul was stoned. He was beaten. He was stoned. Often near death is what he said. Three times he was shipwrecked. Okay, Paul, like if you've been shipwrecked once, probably not going to ship another time. Second time, you for sure don't need to go a third time. But he goes on again and he's shipwrecked again. Shipwrecked three times. A day and a, a night and a day adrift at sea. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship. Many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 11. The things that he suffered for Christ's namesake. 
And God told Ananias in Acts 9, I will show him these things because I've called him to preach to the Gentiles, to preach to kings and to preach to the children of Israel. And he must know what he must suffer. Now, what's important is this same Paul is the one who wrote who wrote Ephesians 3, 14, that I would be strengthened with might in my inner man. Not to be delivered from trials. He didn't pray that God would save me. That's a valid prayer. Very important. But there was something so much more important than what Paul was suffering. He said it's much more important right now, despite all of this suffering, that Christ would dwell on my heart. That I would have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of his love. And that I would be filled with the fullness of God. Paul, who experienced that shipwreck three times, and who, was, who had five times lashes, five different times, had 39 lashes, who was beaten with rods, who was stoned. He said, all of these things happened. But more important than that, and more important than me being delivered from that, is that I would experience union with Christ. That I would experience Him in my soul. And that is what we have access to. We sometimes get so overwhelmed with our own problems and their real problems, and we should pray for those problems. But our problems need to be looked at in perspective to what we have access to. Our problems are so small when we remember, oh wait, I can encounter God right now. Christ can dwell in my heart. I can experience Him. And when I say experience, I'm not talking about being knocked out for a week under the presence of God, although that can happen. I believe in that. But I'm talking about every day, sensing his nearness, that is power. He comes close to us and allows us to encounter him in that way. Now, in a moment, Steve's going to lead us in a time of communion, and there is no better way to respond to something like this than communion. And as we close, what I want to do is just pray this prayer for us. And I want to encourage us that this is what we have to pray. If you're in that place asking, Lord, why don't I feel you? Why don't I sense you? His answer to us is you have to ask. You have to ask me because I want to encounter you. I want you to experience me, but you have to first ask. Let's pray together. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he would grant us to be strengthened with power through his spirit in our inner being, so that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith being rooted and grounded in love, that we would have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and that we would know this love of Christ that passes all knowledge and that we would be filled with all the fullness of God.